Greetings, dear listeners. Are there any new ideas left? That's the question that we tackled this week. I say we, but I don't include myself. I made way for our friend Sam Kimbriel to be on the show alongside Shadi as we hosted the great Ross Douthat. A fascinating conversation ensued. If decadence is upon us, what kind of big ideas can snap us out of it? And what will these big ideas look like? Should we be careful what we wish for? You may have noticed that we moved to Substack recently, a few weeks ago. We hope you'll head on over and check out all the new content, essays, debates, and guest writers. Do consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet, while you're there. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation. Become part of the crowd. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. three of us have been kind of arguing about this topic for a couple of years already, this kind of question about um, what holds a society together and what gives you a kind of cohesiveness to it. And, um, and Ross, you famously have um, kind of tried to push this question very hard in terms of this theme of decadence and where, where we find ourselves and kind of what, what um, I think, trying to highlight degradations in the society that a lot of people kind of want to paper over, but you want to say, actually, like, there's something here that's really troubling and um, we kind of have to just be honest about it. And um, and that kind of taps into themes that Shadi and I are both really interested in. I, I think in my case, I'm very, very interested in the theme of whether you can build a society on finite terms instead of um, infinite terms. It seems to me that, like, all the societies that I admire most have this kind of oscillation between finitude and infinity that I find really attractive. Um, so I thought, yeah, we talked about some of that kind of stuff. Yeah, infinitude. Um, okay, that's definitely something we'll want to dive into. So the Ross that Sam was referring to is none other than Ross Douthat, columnist at the New York Times. <laughs> none and, other. Um, <laughs> Except and author, no substitutes. <laughs> and the author most recently of The Decadent no Society. <laughs> the Decadent Society. Um, and, it, and the subtitle is really interesting, too, if I recall. It's um, how we became victims of our own success. So we will be talking about decline, despair, decadence, all these D words that are quite sad and negative. And Sam, uh, Samuel Kimbriel, um, as many of you know, is a philosopher and also joined us recently as an editor-at-large at Wisdom of Crowds. He's written a really fascinating essay, which we'll include in the show notes. It's titled Thinking is Risky, A Call for Intellectual Ambition. So as far as I can tell, what Sam is trying to do there is to look at our decadence and our apparent decline. And he's trying to think of ways that we can reverse that by thinking big. Obviously, that's an uphill battle. Um and so maybe, Ross, if you just I, I'd just be curious, some of your initial thoughts, um, your book on decadence came out a couple of years ago. And, you know, 
in many ways, it seems like things are getting worse or they feel like they're getting worse. Um, when I think about decadence, I tend to just like think about chocolate. I don't know. Whenever I hear that word, that's immediately what I go to. I don't know where I'm going with that. But um, I mean, there it's is better. This... It's better than immediately thinking of, uh, you know, the movie Caligula or something. Right. I mean, you know, there's sort of a range of. There's a there's a range of things that that the phrase could evoke, and chocolates are a relatively harmless one. I guess. True. Although, although, although uh, just if we're starting with chocolate, I did have a conversation with someone uh, who works at a chocolate company recently, and um, someone someone he... named named Wonka. Perhaps <laughs> it may, it may well have been, but um, for disclosure reasons, let's try to keep that uh, quiet. <laughs> anyway, this person this this person was um, emphasizing that they had not come up with any new recipes, any new like proper chocolate uh, recipes that had done well since the seventies. So you you do kind of have <laughs> light confirmation from the chocolate sector of your thesis. Even as well. even decadence is decadent, basically is is the <laughs> takeaway. Basically, basically, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, and maybe just to kind of prime Ross a little bit, here's sort of what I was thinking about this morning. I've been thinking a lot about progress and how I feel about it because I'm someone who you, used to consider himself a progressive. I don't think I would be comfortable identifying myself that way, and I haven't been for for many years. But that's partly because I do wonder if we've reached the limits of progress culturally. Um, I think that one can and perhaps should be a progressive on economic terms. I think there's still much that can be done and changed. And that's tied to also questions around the purpose of society and what it means to live in a just one. Um, but I think I'm kind of done with cultural progress for a little while. I want to just take a little bit of a breather. Um, but at the same time, I'm here I'm talking about the kind of cultural progress that we associate with woke progressivism. But there's other kinds of cultural renewal which aren't tied to the left or to the progressive left. Um, yeah, I don't know if that primes you in any direction, Ross. Well, this take is, that I mean, right. Will. I mean, this is, I, I'll try and, I guess, in a way, start with Sam's terrific essay, right, which is sort of about that last point you're making, right? That, you know, well, yeah, one way to think about progress is on the terms currently set by the movement that describes itself as progressive, where it is basically sort of the con constant or supposed to be the constant unfolding of greater human liberation joined to greater human, in a, joined to greater human equality with the potential tensions between the two to be negotiated at this point, I suppose, by a diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracy. Um, but that that's, that's quite different, I think, from the idea of progress as basically sort of making, making new discoveries about the world, understanding the world in new ways, achieving deeper levels of understanding, achieving breakthroughs in knowledge. Um, and, uh, you know, which itself can take multiple forms. You can say, you know, well, that's that's sort of scientific progress. It's sort of breakthroughs in mastery, understanding joined to mastery of the physical universe. You can say sort of breakthroughs in philosophy, art, literature, drama take, you know, somewhat harder to quantify forms. Um, but one of the points that I took Sam's essay to be making was that one of the features of art 
era is a kind of in in the realm in the realm of ideas especially less i mean we can talk about science separately but in the realm of ideas a sort of a sort of unwillingness to try and make broad synthetic leaps and take big risks and risk sounding foolish in making sweeping claims about the world um and you know with with in in this particular case i think sam you are contrasting sort of the the stunted ambitions of our own age um to just you know a, a work of a famous work of islamic philosophy from from the 10th or 11th century right which is you know not not one of the most famous books in world history by any means but yeah, a book yeah. to just to read it now is basically trying to do 17 things at once and you know sort of yeah. bring together all kinds of ideas in ways that you know like right now we associate like if you think about history right we associate yeah. with um uh, you know hg wells's outline of history like these you know spengler's yeah. decline yeah. and fall that you know there there used to be big attempts to sort of read the world in yeah. in a broad yeah. way and and those maybe have disappeared to some extent or people are people are afraid to attempt them and i suppose you know, I found this resonant because it seems like a, a sort of subcategory of um, this broader sense that is what I was trying to describe in my book of not yeah, collapse yeah. and decline. Although we can we can talk about whether those are maybe seem more on the horizon <laughs> than they did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think things have generally become more unsettled in our decadent society now than they were even when I when I finished the book. But it there is generally, I think, this sense of sort of repetition and exhaustion as yeah, yeah. deep and important spirits of our time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so just two points there. I think the first is that I I think I am fascinated by the basic question of what allows for a period of renewal or um, innovation, development in all kinds of ways. And the, it seems to me that this is a question that we have assumed is easy and therefore we just float on certain, certain resources, but actually the background conditions to periods of vitalization, it's, and, and sort of institutional, like all the things you're talking about, um, exploration, institutional renewal, the kind of idea of a society that has some kind of hope and vision to it. I think, there have been a lot of assumed there's been there have been many assumptions that we actually can do that without thinking about it and so i'm paying a lot of attention to some i think i think those are those if if the kinds of things that i'm talking about were in place i think those features of um ambition and confidence as you sort of construct societal institutions would all become much easier i th so so the 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 thing that I'm wanting to pay attention to is the way in which um, you do actually need a certain level of confidence that questions that are at this fundamental level uh, about what human life is for, what human beings are, how how the world fits together, the nature of our interaction with the world, how you should like how you should conduct yourself on Thursdays, like all of those questions sort of tie together in a certain way. And I think that we have essentially allowed specialization 
to take the place of the fact that we don't feel confident asking questions of that scale. And so we have a whole bunch of institutions that look like they are continuing to explore or continuing to innovate in a certain way. But there is, in my assessment, a real um, decay of confidence in the kinds of building blocks that you would need for those institutions to make sense or to flourish in the first place. And so I, I am, um, I think I am wanting to sort of very directly kind of speak to the class of people that should be responsible for that and say like, why aren't we ambitious? Like what, what is it that's making it so that we don't actually have confidence in asking these kinds of, as to use Shadi's language, like first principle questions about the nature of, of life and the nature of the world and how you should, how you should go about it. Who are those people who should have that responsibility? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, as so, so I want to answer two things. One, I actually think asking these kinds of questions um, is helpful for breaking a lot of the class divisions. There's a way in which um, asking, we've talked about this on the podcast before, actually, like um, asking what the meaning of life is, is a much more accessible question than asking someone, um, give me sort of how you want to calibrate our pension system appropriately. Like those are, those are different types of expertise. And one of them gives you the ability to say, I know about this because I went to graduate school, which is the latter one. And the former, what is the meaning of the world or what, what, what is life about is something that is, I think in my view, much more of a human inheritance as a whole. It's something that everyone in principle should have access to. So, so that's, that's just like one, I think, basic point. Um, if you do what I'm suggesting, well, I think it changes some of the class configuration in an important way. I also think that the people who are um, in um, positions of influence in academia is what is one of my targets. Um, also, though, in media and in politics, those are positions that in principle should be looking toward like large horizons about what the society should look like in 50 years. Um, and I think largely in in different ways in those fields, people have gotten pushed into small horizons. In the, what I argue in the essay is that in the case of academia, that looks like specialization. So people are just writing very, very incremental. And this is a part of being risk averse that um, instead, so if you, if you think to take like an alternative example, like if you think about the kinds of like massive frameworks that people are debating between like um, the Romantics and Kant and Hegel, like these are genuinely like totally different visions of the world that end up having huge implications if you t- accept one framework over another. What you pick up when what you see when you pick up a normal um, philosophy journal these days is a slight addendum to a possible intervention in a conversation that started forty years ago, and th- that's just a very limited, cramped kind of way of doing an intellectual discipline, in my view. Uh, so that's that's on the one hand. I think in culture, we do have actually some very large systematic ideas that are being proposed in, in various ways. Um, I think that, um, you know, I'm actually have been actually somewhat sympathetic to a number of the social justice and woke kind of articulations in certain places, because I think that they are a resurgence of um, so, something that you might call like a comprehensive framework. Like it's a way of seeing the whole world and then saying, here are the implications for you in terms of how you live. 
I think you can disagree with that and you can disagree with the specifics of that framework. But the idea that you would have this like mm. resurgent kind of large scale moral vision that wants to structure a society, I think that's actually quite interesting and cool. Yeah. But this my is... critique on mm. my critique on the cultural side is just that I think we've gotten very tied up into the like social pettiness of that game instead of the like um fascination or enthusiasm for like understanding the world like the world the, in principle if the world is amenable to understanding like you should mainly be worried about that and be afraid of getting the world wrong less much 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 more so than you are um worried about like kind of crossing a line with your peers and i think i think the media game people are much more playing this like internal peer peer hierarchy well, well there's also that a, brings a, us a to peculiar. ross's i mean i, I Oh, sorry, Roz. I want to say that that brings us to your recent piece, which I just want to flag for readers. Um, it's called Why Journalists Have More Freedom Than Professors. Highly recommend it. Give it a read. Um, because I think, Ross, what you're getting at is that academics are not well equipped to play this role because they have less freedom than journalists. Although, obviously, all of this is a low bar, I suppose. But um, you want to just maybe lay out the, the, the big parts of that argument. Um, why do journalists have more freedom than professors and why is academia screwed? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it connects in a way to sort of questions about social justice or wokeness as a kind of comprehensive framework. Um, because I, 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 I think one of the big, you know, the... The big questions that anyone who is not a sort of fully onboard social justice progressive has to wrestle with in, you know, elite knowledge, you know, knowledge class institutions these days, right, is like, you know, just just how stultifying is is the is the power of this sort of new new worldview? To what extent is it an orthodoxy that commands assent versus to what extent is it just a worldview that can that can be argued with? And I think a bunch of what I said in the piece was that there are a bunch of factors that that sort of incentivize argument in journalism. Um, the fact that journalists are, you know, selling a product and have to reach a mass audience that is not itself sort of steeped in the, you know, elite jargon of, of progressive discourse. The fact that journalism thrives on controversy. If you run an opinion page, as the New York Times does, where, where I work, and all of your opinions are the same, it's going to look, you know, you're going to look a little bit silly. <laughs> after after a certain period a certain period of time the fact that media offers sort of exit strategies right you have voice and you have exit and you can if you're unhappy at a particular institution but you have an audience that likes to read you you can go to another institution you can go to substack you can do you know sort of start start your own place and build your own audience in ways that then affects the choices of the larger institutions, right? So you had sort of a wave of liberal dissidents from progressivism sort of going to Substack, and then some elite institutions would sort of hire them once they saw that there was an audience there, right? So like John McWhorter sets up a Substack, and then the Times hires him to write a newsletter, right? So that there's, there's that kind of these sort of feedback loops. And also journalism, daily journalism is trying to constantly describe reality. 
It has to. Yeah, That's, yeah. you know, you're selling a paper, you're selling a magazine. It has to say something about the world as it actually exists. And, you know, you can frame the world in ideological terms. Obviously, Fox and MSNBC do this every night. But at some point, you know, you, you have to you have to be talking about things that are really happening and reckon with them on some level. And, and all of this yeah. in a more, I think, profound and immediate and constant and frankly, sort of market driven way than academia, where, you know, in theory, and to Sam's point, right, academia is supposed to create the space to yep. think the deep thoughts and come up with the big picture syntheses and do so in a way that's free from, you know, through tenure or whatever other mechanism through outside, free from outside political pressure. And it absolutely can do that, right? And I think academia is quite good at least outside of, you know, now certain conservative states that are turning against tenure at creating that kind of protection from outside forces. The problem is if you have a particularly potent orthodoxy that is itself elite driven and insider driven, academics are operating professionally in very sort of narrow and again, to both of your points, specialized networks where you're, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a good idea and it has a big audience, but, you know, the people who run hiring at the major, you know, the major universities don't like your idea or your colleagues don't like your idea or the people responsible for giving you tenure don't like your idea. You know, you can't just go to Substack. You can, but you're giving up your academic career. Right. And so yeah, you're in yeah. sort of just more what can see end up being what are supposed to be more cloistered, but can end up being more claustrophobic spaces. And this I mean, this just to loop it back to to what um, yeah. to what you were saying about wokeness as a comprehensive theory. I, I agree. I, I think wokeness at its best is trying to fill yeah. this vacuum and say, look, we have, you know, yeah, we, we have a sort of empty secular liberal meritocracy that doesn't know what it's for, doesn't have an account of the good life or justice or anything yeah. apart from yeah. acquisition and professional success. And here we are with a more robust account. The problem yeah. is twofold. One, you know, from my perspective, right, as a religious writer, people will critique wokeness and say, oh, it's like a religion. But wokeness is only partially like a religion. It's a comprehensive moral vision that has no metaphysical correlative, right? It lacks the ambition to say, here's how my moral vision actually fits into the full architecture of the universe, right? Yeah, so in that yeah. sense, it doesn't go far enough in ambition. But then it's also yeah, become yeah. it's become very institutionally successful by not admitting that it's a comprehensive vision, right? So you have figures, you know, in the past, Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, you know, sort of, sort of ideas people associated with it. You have someone like Ibram Kendi playing that role today. But a lot of the time, social justice, progressivism is not presenting itself as like, I am a Hegelian, I am a romantic. It's it's denying any label. It's saying, oh, the conservatives want to label us, but we're just... We're just interested in diversity and who could be against diversity, right? So it's sort of, (laughs) it's, and that's useful for institutional capture, but it's not useful for big think. Yeah. 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 uh, Well, yeah. So, you know, on, on, on this point, I do, well, this also makes me a little bit nervous about comprehensive frameworks because, you know, if wokeness is actually an example of the kind of big thinking that Sam is calling for, 
you know, it's sort of be careful what you wish for, because you don't know what the big ideas are going to be before they're developed. So if we have this call for intellectual ambition, we could have any number of comprehensive doctrines and comprehensive frameworks. And then we're like, oh, the problem, the problem in scare quotes of comprehensive frameworks is that they're comprehensive, they're intense, they can be overwhelming, they can also create and enforce new orthodoxies. Um, there is a risk of going in this direction to say that there must be something beyond the elite consensus around what used to be called liberalism. To go beyond liberalism means to explore alternative ways of being in the world, which is maybe what we need, but the alternatives to liberalism can be scary. And wokeness is just one example of that scariness. You know, for the, you know, for those who look at it from a different perspective, the kind of, um, you know, hungry, friendly, illiberal turn in American conservative thought is also can also be frightening um, for very different reasons. So I just want to flag that as a potential risk. Like, do we really, um, how much are we really comfortable with this direction, considering that there are these drawbacks? So let me, let me run over a little bit of the history here, because I think it hits this question specifically, and I think it'll help us. So I'm, I'm skeptical that I'm skeptical of the idea that we're actually going to be in a period where any particular ideology, whether it's uh, whatever Orban-style authoritarianism that people in the Democratic Party are worried about, or total institutional suffocation from um, from like woke ideas, are, are going to be totally totally hegemonic. Like it seems to me that there will be. It seems to me much more likely that we're going to be in a period of significant internal fracture for a while. And I think the argument I would want to make is that it's better to do a period of fracture like that honestly than dishonestly. So if we end up um, with a time where people really don't agree with each other, it's better to have it out on the table why we disagree with each other. And especially, I think, being able to get to the more foundational debates that people are having rather than the more superficial ones. So, yeah, so I guess that's why I'm I'm not pessimistic or kind of apocalyptic about any of the things that I see happening. It seems to me that there are real possibilities for a period of regeneration, like to the decadence theme. I'm not totally convinced that we're always going to be stuck in a kind of time of institutional decay. Um just to run one thing about the history here, I do think essentially what we're seeing. So in the um, 60s and 70s, there was a way of dealing with the sense of internal tension within the society that did have like a pretty unified kind of coherent view. And especially at the elite level. And and this is um, in part identified with a kind of already decadent, but still resilient um, kind of mainline Protestantism that structured a lot of the country, and then also a kind of like fairly self-confident liberalism like what you get in John Rawls. And, you know, in many ways, I think in um, our generation, 
Rawls seems incredibly passe. He still has a lot of power within political science or political theory departments, but there is a way in which this kind of idea that you could have a society where at the personal level people have commitments and those commitments just happen to overlap um, in a way that kind of publicly makes it sort of okay for everyone and you never really run big arguments about the meaning of life. I think that feels increasingly um, v- very, very um, archaic and kind of kind of like a nostalgic vision that um, that's very hard to access for, for most people now. And the question is, as that degrades, as that sort of, we have enough consensus to make it so that no one has to say anything very strongly, as that starts to degrade, the question is like, what's going to happen next? And my, my feeling is probably what you're going to get is, are a lot of pretty poor watered down versions of what I'm calling for. So instead of people really seriously taking the kind of large ambitious questions that I'm, that I want, like uh, what the meaning of life is, what do people feel at the deepest level? I think we're going to get, and Ross, this may be to your point about, about wokeness that like, it looks a little bit like a comprehensive doctrine and then also not at all. Like one that people are, are not actually taking some of those like foundational questions seriously or developing a real theory around them. And that, that seems pretty plausible that like, if you have a period where you say, no, no one can do this. The first few iterations of people trying to do it are not going to be especially impressive, but over time, my hope is that we will actually start to develop a, um, a capacity to ask those largest questions well in a way that does give people confidence to gradually ref- refine them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I have a little bit of sort of shoddy sentiment on the wokeness front, right? Where, you know, I wrote columns sort of during the first, you know, whenever sort of the new culture of campus protest started, right? Let's say yeah, yeah. 2014 to 2016. I, I think I wrote a column called something like the crisis our universities deserve, um, where I basically, in a way, it would have been a version of what you're saying, Sam, right? That like, our universities have sort of emptied themselves of any sense of moral purpose, or, you know, sort of metaphysical ambition, they're just finishing schools, for a meritocratic elite. Um, William Derisowicz has had this book called Excellent Sheep, right, that was sort of critiquing this this mentality. And so I said, look, you know, I mean, I don't agree with the social justice progressives on a lot of fronts, but, um, you know, to quote the Big Lebowski, at least it's an ethos, <laughs> right? Like, you know, um, and now that it's a dominant ethos, I'm like, eh, you know, maybe, maybe the you know barren Less terrain ethos. of yeah. of <laughs> end of history meritocracy wasn't wasn't so bad, right? Um, and yeah, you know, there are versions of this for 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 Trumpism too, right? Like, you know, in the late 1990s, a couple of prominent right of center intellectuals wrote a bunch of stuff about what they called national greatness conservatism which was this idea, you know, that you needed you needed purpose and, you know, national ambition and a drive for greatness to escape from the mediocrity at the end of history. Um, and those guys were, you know, Bill Crystal and my colleague David Brooks, who are now, you know, incredibly intense scourges of the, you know, the national greatness conservatism that we have actually gotten in, in the Western world. So they're like, well, you know, I didn't mean that, <laughs> right? So there's, 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 but... But I also, you know, with that sort of feeling, I also ag- agree with Sam, right, that if 
in the end, basically, to get out of decadence, you sort of have to play a somewhat dangerous game. Where, and, and in my book, I sort of said, you know, I'm not really willing to play this game in the sense that, like, I didn't support Donald Trump, right? I'm not, I'm not willing to, you know, take huge risks to get out of to get out of decadence. But there is just sort of a risk frontier where you're saying, yeah, we need dynamism and action and comprehensive theories of the good and big new experiments. And some of those are going to be bad. And sometimes, you know, you you're trying to get out of decadence and you end up with something you end up with a collapse or you end up with, you know, something dark that you have to escape from, you know, the decadence of czarist Russia led to something else, right? Like decadence of Weimar Germany, famously the same, something pretty dark. So, so yeah, it is, there, there is a dynamic where to renew, to renew liberalism, you need something within liberalism besides just acquisition and competition, but you are risking something by sort of cultivating those you know, those sort of more ambitious spirits. There's there's yeah, definitely so, risk involved. So let me let me actually ask you a couple of questions about this specifically, because I, I find so I, I mean, I, I really like your decadence book and I find it really fascinating. Um, I think one of the premises that you and I really share is this sense that the f- that you can't actually build a finite society and have it work, a society that is only about sort of shuffling quite modest small level goods around that that society somehow is um anthropologically unrealistic it's not it doesn't actually pay attention to what human beings are and the degree to which we do have this like much more aspirational structure and um there are I think there are examples of societies that do this in very, very different ways that the kind of shuffle between the finite and the infinite can show up in, in like fascinatingly different approaches. And I think the, um, you, you know, some, some of them have more local features. So you do have rhythms of sacrifice or, um, like collective mystery rituals that end up being able to shuffle between how you need to make sure the crops keep going and this kind of broader horizon about what the meaning of the society is, what the meaning of the community is. So I think that that's, I think that that's right. And, and, um, there's a, there's a, so I think when we look at our society, there's a certain way in which we have taken that, that infinite desire and then tried to drive it into the world. So, this is part of the reason that I'm so interested in ecological issues. There's a feature of human beings that seem to be looking for something vast and expansive. And what we've done is create a massive uh, consumer machine that makes it so you can always create iteratively more products and more impressive products so that you are somehow satisfied. Of course, that doesn't, I'm not sure that anyone living within that particular theory of of the finite and the infinite uh ends up being particularly happy but it is a theory of happiness i I do think that that's that's how it operates and in some ways it's like the american theory of happiness like when we talk about the american dream it does have this feature of um expansiveness to it but it's an expansiveness that works in this world on very material terms in, in a lot of ways like there's this passage in jefferson's letters that i always think about where he says the great 
power that the American experiment has is an infinite amount of land. If we ever end up running out of land, we're all going to be huddled in cities again like Europe, and uh, we're going to end up in mass, like essentially the same massive social problems that they, that they have that he's critiquing. And that that's, I think, more or less the American sentiment from the revolution. And figuring out so yeah so i'm interested in that set of issues in your in your book you're um i'm interested in the way in which you're actually somewhat open to that kind of technological or material feature so you talk a lot about the kind of space race and some aspects of that that seem attractive ai also seems like a version of like trying to explore the infinite of a certain kind where you are looking to you know this like vast realm of like new intelligence that can suddenly captivate our society and give us the ability to do all kinds of miracles that we've never been able to do before. So we are like a society that's fascinated by the infinite. But the question is, is part of the issue of decadence that our theories of the infinite are insufficient somehow? That's a lot. That's a lot. But that's, that's a lot. That's yeah, a, yeah. Um, that, that's I, the realm I'll, that I'm interested in. I'll get in. back to you with a 550-page book, <laughs> very ambitious book, synthesizing all of human history. I'd love. I'd, I'd love that. You, you would. You love that. Yeah. Um, I, so I'll be. Yeah, I'll be one, the, of, one, your, I'll one, be one thing of your 17 ag- readers. Right. One thing that academics have that journalists don't is time. Um, but <laughs> yeah, to sort of start. So on the on the American, well. I think there's sort of two related things here, right? Which is that, yes, I, I think all successful societies depend on some kind of narrative about the human place in the cosmos that lends meaning to everyday existence with all its trials and difficulties and challenges, right? And I mean, and these narratives tend to be religious. Religion is a word that can cover, a, you know, a, a great many different concepts. Um, but this sense of being sort of embedded in a narrative, in a story that is larger than yourself, that gives meaning to your life, that, um, you know, that encourages you to continue the story by having children and grandchildren and sort of seeing your own life connected to their lives. That seems like a necessary aspect of societal flourishing that is increasingly absent in the late modern developed world, not just in the United States, um, where we have sort of, we sort of went Rawlsian and said, you know, well, we're going to have these narratives, but each narrative is going to be the individual's narrative. You're going to create your own narrative, right? You know, there's not going to be any sort of shared narrative. We sort of had a shared narrative, but it was sort of a very vague, thin, post-Christianity, a sort of, thera- you know, sort of a therapeutic spirituality. But, you know, however, however you analyze the cultural turn we've taken in the last 50 years, um, the, the belief that there is sort of a, you know, a story that we're part of that is connected to the ultimate meaning of the universe has clearly weakened. And in the American case, right, that story was, yeah, a sort of fusion of, sort of Protestant Christianity and this kind of frontier spirit of geographic expansion and domination and so on that in my in my book's argument sort of reaches its culmination with the moon landing, not with the closing of the frontier. And then upon the discovery that we weren't going to get to Mars anytime soon, the American project sort of starts to feed upon itself. And yeah, in Jeffersonian terms, we retreat, you know, everyone moves back to the cities and starts having fights on social media. 
and here we are today. <laughs> um, and that, I mean, I think just the fact that like no developed society except for the very illuminating case of Israel, which clearly has a national story and a sort of sense of purpose, no other, no other developed society is able to replace itself demographically at the moment is a strong tell against where, you know, sort of late modernity has taken us. The other related point, though, right, is that in just in terms of sort of the narrower question of um, sort of scientific, philosophical, ethical progress, which is not, I think, been a goal of every society. You can imagine a society that has a sort of narrative of its own place in the cosmos that has no interest in discovery and scientific progress, right? That it's sort of a steady state, you know, Wendell Berry living on his farm, you know, a tribe in the Amazon, whatever, whatever anthropological example you want, right? But Western society has always said, no, you know, we're, we have this, we have a place in the universe, and we're going to make discoveries and make progress and unlock more and more. And that, to me, definitely depends to an extent that sort of the people actually doing science don't really want to acknowledge on this view that the universe is supposed to be intelligible to us, that there is, in fact, a plan to be discovered, that it isn't all just arbitrary, that our minds are, in some sense, linked to to the matter of the cosmos in ways that enable us to figure it all out, right? And I think as that idea has, you know, become attenuated and diminished, um, you it, that explains in part not all, but part of the loss of ambition. Because if you think that, you know, the human mind is simply an accident in which consciousness is sort of an illusion created in order to sort of harmonize the workings of different different stimulus-based modules in the brain, like, why would you imagine that you, you know, homo sapien, can possibly come up with a, you know, a broad theory that, you know, links metaphysics and morals in any coherent way. And I'll, I'll just say to end on the, since you brought up the AI stuff, I do think that one of the areas of sort of rebellion against decadence, if you will, that we've seen more of in the last five or 10 years is this kind of yearning for not the sort of ultimate, not the Judeo-Christian God or the God of classical theism, but for some kind of intermediate power to help us out, right? And AI is sort of a particular literalization of this, but like where sort of new age spirituality has gone, it's sort of gone, it's it's gone in very much a like, you know, spiritualist, polytheist, connecting with spirits and angels and ancestors and all of these things. Um, I, I've become sort of, you know, the UFO, the return of the UFO fascination fits into this in obvious ways. Like maybe there's a more advanced species out there that can help us out, right? The people taking ayahuasca and DMT and meeting entities that are either bringing them enlightenment or are scarier, right? It, that fits in here too. And I will say, since I've been reading in this terrain, like, you know, if you want to find theories of everything right now, you know, go find the people, go read the people who are, you know, trying to meld all these things together in a kind of crackpot cosmology, right? Like the people who are trying to mix evangelical Christianity, evangelical Christian apocalyptics with UFO stuff, with, um, uh, you know, with, with whatever's going to happen with AI. Like I'm, I just pulled up my list of weird readings in this. Here's a book called Birthright, the coming post-human apocalypse and the usurpation of Adam's dominion on planet Earth. 
Like, if you read that book, you will find an answer to Sam's to Sam's demand for a theory a theory of everything. I promise. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus. Thank <laughs> you.